You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this series, we're discussing landscape and ecology and thinking about how what we build relates to the natural world around us. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. With the latest planning bill, the drive for build, build, build that Boris has been encouraging to kickstart the economy, it's given, I think, this carte blanche for developers to to choose greenfield sites. Of course it's NIMBY, we don't want it next to us, but I think there's a much larger argument here. It really is the planning bill versus the environment bill, and it's becoming a test case for Is the Environment Bill, are the green ambitions of this government really going to have teeth? Or is planning the economy, housing, always going to trump nature, as it always has done in the past? Today we speak to Isabella Tree, co-founder of NEP, a landmark rewilding project near Horsham in West Sussex. Isabella speaks to us about the urgent campaign she is spearheading to prevent the development of an adjacent site with 3,500 homes, a scheme due to go before Horsham District Council on July 29th. This controversy goes to the heart of the conflict between the upcoming Environment Bill and planning reform. In this episode, Isabella explains what's at stake for NEP and why she's opposing the development. Her campaign has already garnered almost 20,000 signatures. Have a listen, and if you'd like to support the campaign to protect NEP, go to savewestgrinstead.co.uk. Isabella, We are delighted and really honored that you've taken time out to talk to us today to share with us the story of NEP, your home and remarkable rewilding project in West Sussex, and in particular, the campaign that you're waging to stave off adjacent development. Your campaign goes to the heart of the planning reform debate, which has been much in the news of late, including an article in last week's Guardian headlined, It's Tearing Us All Apart, housing plans in Sussex turn NIMBY against NIMBY. The article includes a map of all the proposed development around you, which is quite sobering, and we'll put a link in the show notes. I'm certain many of our listeners have visited NEP and may have even stayed overnight in your tree houses. For any listeners who are not familiar with what's happening at NEP or who want to catch up with the latest developments, I would direct you to a talk Isabella gave to the Linnaean Society last night, now on YouTube. What I find most inspiring about NEP is that it engenders hope. And when you see the transformation from pesticide-laden agricultural land to an area bursting with biodiversity, including many rare birds which have found NEP and nested there, you see what is possible 
when you let nature heal itself and all this in just two decades. It gives me hope for the planet. In addition, your work is addressing some of the most pressing ecological issues we face, carbon sequestration, flood mitigation, soil restoration, clean air, clean water, not to mention the biodiversity implication. NEP is a 3,500-acre estate near Horsham, a property your husband inherited as a dairy farm in the 1980s. And unable to make ends meet in dairy farming, you took a brave move in 2000 to sell off the dairy operation and adopt an approach to stewarding the land in which nature takes the lead. And two decades on, NEP has been hailed as one of the most exciting wildlife conservation projects in the UK and indeed in Europe. You have almost single-handedly coined the term rewilding, beautifully explained in your 2018 book, Wilding. For me, your book was extremely disturbing because I'll never look at the picturesque green pattern of agricultural fields and hedgerows in the English countryside in quite the same way. You mentioned in your lecture last night that Neff has never had so many visitors if you've, as you've had after the first lockdown. 10,000 visitors in two to three months last summer. So how was lockdown for you? I hate to say it, but the beginning of lockdown was blissful. For those of us lucky enough to live in the countryside, let alone when you're surrounded by nature, just being able to down tools and be outside and just rest for a bit was just heaven. We were lucky enough to have our, our children now in their 20s living with us too. So When lockdown was finally released in May, I think it was, we did see, as you say, this extraordinary influx of people. And it was very joyful in a way because the obvious relief of people getting out of cities, of apartments, of, you know, getting out into nature. And you could just see that healing, wonderful, joyful kind of experience of people just being out amongst living things again, connecting with biophilia, as wonderful E.O. Wilson would say. But it is a difficult balance to strike because we don't have many areas of nature and most of them are very isolated. And when you have something like a lockdown release and huge numbers of people descending on these nature reserves, the impact on wildlife is huge, particularly if people don't know about footpaths or they choose not to obey the signs and let their dogs off leads and all the rest of it you know ground nesting birds hugely problematic we had lots of dogs disturbing nightingale nests in our hedgerows you know the nightingales nest about a foot off the ground we noticed during lockdown itself how prevalent the nests were of birds actually close to the footpaths we'd never seen that before and of course when people arrived back that disappeared So it's a fine balance. We have to have access to nature because, of course, we need our children to be the ambassadors for nature in the future. And if they're frightened of it or unaware of it or unconnected to it, that's not going to happen. So, yes, it's been a very interesting experience. So how have you accommodated the surge in visitor numbers? Have you had to restrict people coming in or...? No, um, we have uh, Public Footpaths, which, you know, is a wonderful institution in in the UK. And, you know, I know places in the world where they don't have public rights of access. And I'm very proud that we do. We have about 16 miles of public footpaths across the estate. 
So people are, can come day or night, any day of the year. We didn't originally want to have the whole rewilding project bristling with bossy signs. We've had to retract rather <laughs> a bit and we've had to put up some bossy signs. We've had to suggest, for example, that our, you know, our free-roaming animals need to socially distance too because a lot of people aren't familiar with seeing a horse in a field and knowing that it's actually wild. So they try and go up and pet it. The same with our pigs. And we really do need to have a flight distance for our, our free-roaming herds or all sorts of problems arise. But now we do have a warden and we have volunteers who are out in the rewilding project all the time, who engage with people who are walking around and hopefully diplomatically and politely steer people back onto footpaths if they've wandered off. But it's a really positive thing that, I think, because that engagement with volunteers who can explain the rewilding project to them, why we need to keep people on footpaths, what the free-roaming animals are doing in the project, why they're vital for nature restoration, is all really useful, I think. Well, looking back at your rewilding journey over the last two decades, can you pick out two or three highlights that you're most proud of? Gosh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm hugely proud of my husband in the first place for taking the brave decision to give up farming. It was really his vision and his open-mindedness, I think, that managed to see that farming was on this very heavy clay soil was taking us nowhere. It really was the wrong type of soil to be doing intensive agriculture on. And that vision of, of doing something different, this rewilding experiment, was really his. And I'm, so I'm hugely proud of that. But I'm also proud of, of, of us having stuck to our guns. I think we had terrific support from our advisory board. That was very important in the early days. Renowned ecologists and particularly some, um, including Franz Vera from Holland, who had been through this journey already themselves in giving us the moral support to stick to our guns. But there was one moment when I think our resolve wavered a bit, when the the park around the house, the Repton Park, was covered in hundreds of acres of creeping thistle. And, you know, in the old days, we would have been out with the toppers and the herbicides as quickly as you can imagine to get rid of it. But having pledged ourselves to let nature take its course, we sat on our hands and for another year and then another scary year, the thistles just carried on like the day of the Triffids. And we were getting more and more angry letters, your sincerely disgusted letters from the neighbours and from people who were crossing the footpaths. And then finally, one miraculous Sunday morning, a sunny Sunday morning, we, were, we spotted these painted lady butterflies floating by our window at about one a minute, like tracer. And we rushed outside to see what they were doing. And they were all descending, hundreds of thousands of them, on the creeping thistle. And they'd migrated from Morocco. It had been a boom year for their migration. So instead of just a couple of million flying over to the UK that year, there were hundreds of millions. And they found our creeping thistle, which is their food plant. They laid their eggs on it. Their caterpillars devoured it. And they departed as butterflies, leaving just these tatty, broken stalks. And the following year, there was not a creeping thistle in sight. And so for us, I think that was the, the first early lesson about the boom and bust scenarios of nature and the value of just being patient and letting nature sort things out. 
So it seems that inherent in the rewilding approach, you really need to overcome a kind of aesthetic control freakery about um, what places ought to look like to allow nature to, to take its course. Absolutely. That's exactly it. We grow up, whether we're conscious of it or not, with a kind of aesthetic in our heads of what we believe is a beautiful landscape. And in Britain, that very managed, very meticulously orderly landscape makes us feel perhaps safe and we think it looks orderly and productive. Actually, it's incredibly vulnerable. It's not only a sort of virtual biological desert, but it is very vulnerable to climate change, to decreasing crops, to soil erosion, to flooding, to droughts. It, it is not a safe environment at all for human beings. But we have an emotional, sometimes nostalgic tie to that aesthetic, and we consider it beautiful often. So letting go and letting the scrub come in, letting ragwort and thistles um, take over, allowing ourselves to embrace a kind of unpredictable, dynamic, ever-shifting mosaic of habitats is very difficult. And often I think we have a sort of rather egotistical way of thinking that nature needs us. It needs our help. And we're super keen to do things all the time, whether it's planting trees or managing scrub or whatever it is. And so to actually do less and recognise that it actually produces more is a bit of a mind switch. Definitely. Well, now let's turn to your campaign. You're opposing the development of 3,500 homes on a greenfield site adjacent to you, which I believe is part of a proposed nature recovery corridor. What exactly is a nature recovery corridor and what's this all about? Yes, it's part of a nature recovery network. And this is something that is coming down the road at us with the Environment Bill. So hopefully the Environment Bill will be enacted before COP26 later in the year. And all local councils will be required to create nature recovery networks. So this is to restore biodiversity. And in the Environment Bill, the government wants to have 30% of the land in, in the UK restored to nature. But we need these nature recovery areas, these corridors connecting, reconnecting isolated areas of nature together again really because of climate change, because increasingly species are vulnerable if they remain in these isolated pockets, in these sort of little oases, if they cannot move. I mean, obviously birds can fly, some insects can fly, but most species are going to be doomed to oblivion if they cannot respond to rising temperatures and actually move to other habitats with cooler temperatures. But also isolated habitats mean that populations are often at a genetic disadvantage. They need to connect and breed with other populations or you get a sort of decreasing value of genetic diversity. So that's hugely important, but also we need to connect ecosystems together again. We need to have a flow of, of natural processes through living landscapes. And of course, we have to sequester carbon and soil, vegetation, trees are all the biggest factor, the biggest tool we have for sinking carbon into the soils and combating climate change. 
So what exactly is at stake with this development and how did you get into such a standoff? Well, I think we were caught napping, to be honest, at NEP. We heard about it about a year ago. We assumed because we had been working or our ecologists had been working with Sussex Wildlife Trust and Horsham District Council, our local council, on developing this nature recovery network. So when the plans were first mooted that it was going to be developed, we thought, well, that's no way that's going to to ever take off. But it's turned out that there are very close vested interests, or at least a relationship between the Tory council and the developer. So the ex-planning officer of Horsham District Council is the agent for Thacombe Homes, who are the developer. Thacombe Homes are one of the biggest donors to the Tory party. I think last year they gave about £400,000. It's a very cosy relationship, I think, that, that some of the local councils have with developers. And with the latest planning bill, the drive for build, build, build that Boris has been encouraging to kickstart the economy, it's given, I think, this carte blanche for developers to to choose greenfield sites. Of course it's NIMBY, we don't want it next to us, but I think there's a much larger argument here. It really is the planning bill versus the environment bill. And it's becoming a test case for is the environment bill, are the green ambitions of this government really going to have teeth? Or is planning the economy, housing, always going to trump nature as it always has done in the past? Because we we are in the context of having a, a housing shortage, a, a housing crisis in this country, and there's a huge amount of resistance to house building. NIMBY's always pulled the Habitat card, and in this case it doesn't refer to a habitat which, which yet exists. No, no, that's not true actually, because the habitat that this uh, site is on has been identified by Sussex Wildlife Trust as being between 30 to 40% of high nature value. So it's already acting as a corridor between NEP and other places of nature like St Leonard's Forest. So it's a flyway for bats. We've got 13 out of the 18 species of bat in the UK currently at NEP, including two incredibly rare species, Barberstell and Beckstein's bat, which are rare even in Europe. And these bats are using that site as a flyway. It's also got nightingales. We've got one of the biggest densest populations of nightingales in the UK, another hugely declining bird, down more than 90% since the 1960s. And there are nightingales on this land next to us. It's an overspill from what's happening at NEP. There's fantastic habitat on that land. There's a functioning floodplain that would be impacted hugely by that number of houses and infrastructure on the land all around it. They're not actually building on the floodplain, but that amount of concrete and tarmac and the disruption of the buffers around that floodplain will certainly impact the way it's able to mitigate against floods further downstream, as well, of course, of polluting the tributaries into the River Ada. And then you've got rare gill woodland and you've got ancient woodland on site and you've got open-grown magnificent trees and then amazing old ancient hedgerows that the farmer has allowed to grow out. So that's where you've got your nightingales, your yellow hammer. You've got skylarks in the margins around the fields. So it's a very permeable landscape for wildlife already. It's acting as a, as a wildlife corridor as it is. It could certainly be improved. I mean, I think the, the farm is conventional. So if it moved into regenerative agriculture, that would make the landscape there even more productive for wildlife. But this is one of the questions we really have to address because 
once you cover that that site in concrete and tarmac, it is no longer able to sequester carbon in the soil. So you're instantly having a massive carbon effect. And that is not ever taken into account when you're talking about carbon offsetting. We're also talking about Thacombe Homes, a developer, claiming to be able to deliver 20% biodiversity net gain on site. So that's claiming that they can somehow improve an area that is already 30 to 40% fantastic habitat and put 3,500 houses on it and 10,000 people and their dogs and cats. So what's happening, I think, in the biodiversity net gain sort of metric is that you're being able to include things like gardens and hedgehog boxes and owl boxes and bat boxes without looking at what you're actually doing to the functioning ecosystem. You're not looking at native flora and habitat. You're comparing apples and pears, basically. David Hill of the Environment Bank is very interesting about this. He he is actually perhaps the, the man who in, invented or, or actually developed the whole idea of biodiversity net gain. And he believes that developers should not be allowed to even claim that they can they can produce biodiversity net gain on site because it's virtually impossible. What they should be looking at is off-site biodiversity net gain. So perhaps clubbing together with other developers and finding a, a piece of land that could be a strategic stepping stone or a bridge or a, or a connection between areas of high nature value and putting that into re, a rewilding project. That would be so much more valuable than these absurd claims that are being made at the moment. The planning process for new housing is so confusing. It's not spatial or visual or environmental and nothing is integrated. So we know the Environment Act is is about to come through and the government is very keen on holistic planning reform. Do you think either of these will go far enough in addressing your concerns? Well, I I think we really have to, as you say, we have to integrate the environment into the planning. They've been completely separate, really, until now. And I think you simply can't just plonk your housing into a greenfield site and then hope to mitigate. We have to preserve these strategic areas for nature connectivity as much as we possibly can. I mean, this site that we're talking about is miles and miles from a railway station. It's got no infrastructure there at all. We have to connect and think really intelligently about how we get housing within public transport areas where people are not expected to get into a car to go to work. You know, we've just seen the publication of the new Defrometric, which is how you measure habitats. And we're still thinking with our sort of agriculture and forestry head on, instead of actual natural habitats and dynamism and um, natural processes. For example, in the new DEFRA metric, as far as I understand, brambles and thorny scrub and ragwort are considered a degraded environment. Well, if that's the case, you know, NET would hardly register um, on the DEFRA metric as, as a positive habitat. And yet we are one of the most biodiverse habitats in Britain now. So there is really something very wrong still with the way we, we look at habitat and how we measure it and how we intend to mitigate against its loss. 
I think your point about card-based development is a, is a really salient one, not just from the emissions to do with that, the amount of the site that is covered with tarmac is really extensive in typical development, but where development isn't so car-based, the houses can be more densely clustered. That can free up a lot of space for, for wildlife as, as well as people. Um, do you think there's a way forward in, in that direction? Absolutely. You can, you know, we've, we've got to get away from dependency on the car when we're looking at housing. What happens on a site when you put houses on it? You may have areas of habitat that you intend to preserve to protect for wildlife, but you've still got a massive imposition of disturbance on that site. Cats and dogs being massively detrimental to to wildlife establishment and survival. We know that domestic cats are by far and away the biggest predator in the UK on small mammals and and birds and even insects. Dog walkers and dogs um, flushing out ground nesting birds and nightingales in their hedgerows. It's a really big problem. So even if at the planning stage, if you're intending to preserve these habitats, they may look great, but actually you're already hugely diminishing them for wildlife. And remember, you've got light pollution and noise pollution. So you're, you're hugely chopping up the habitat and fragmenting it on site and then subjecting it to hugely increased disturbance. The other thing I think to look at is that the developer may be forced to accept areas of habitat need to be protected on that site and that may be all with the greatest of intentions on the part of the council and the planners in trying to secure those areas of nature for wildlife or you know whatever can survive in a in a populated landscape but what happens when the developer walks away you know they leave that site in the hands of a management company and Quite often, people living in the houses themselves, the residents, don't have an appreciation that an ecologist might have of what habitat is good for wildlife. And that management company comes under increasing pressure from the residents to mow the the park area or to mow the common areas of grassland or the sidewalks or the areas along the drives. People start patioing over their, their gardens or putting in conservatories or tarmacking the front lawn for their their extra car so who is going to be policing that original plan and protecting that habitat in perpetuity it's impossible to say that one two three decades down the line those habitats are not going to be increasingly increasingly eroded and with shifting baseline syndrome we don't even notice that that's happening Um, so no one will be the wiser So what's the way forward? I mean, where do we put all this housing when you look at the Horsham local plan? Well, I mean, absolutely, we need housing. So we've got to look at the the genuine habitat, really evaluate the habitat before we start just throwing houses on what we think is just boring green fields, is I think what the Horsham council leader described them as. Obviously, we need to incentivize developers to look at brownfield sites to be able to develop those brownfield sites. We have a a really good local MP, sadly not our own local MP, but the constituency next to us who is also battling the similar thing, Andrew Griffith, who brought this up in Parliament the other day in the House, that which I think is just a brilliant idea, you know, is to scrap the stamp duty for people who want to downsize. 
So you see a lot of people of a certain age who have a house, their children have grown up and moved away, but they don't sell their two, three, four bedroom house because of the huge stamp duty. So scrapping that for people who want to downsize will free up houses for for families again. There's a lot of imaginative ways of looking at how we can actually fulfill housing. So our next episode after yours is, is focused on Velo City, which is a proposal for Blenheim Estate they're working with now and looking at how to cluster housing near existing village centers, use bridle paths to connect things by cycle and foot and get people out of their cars, finding alternate ways to, to move about and reinforce the existing villages. And just wondering if something like this could work near you. Absolutely. I mean, that just makes complete sense to me. We're at a disadvantage really in the southeast because we are sucking up a lot of housing demand from London. We could never fulfill that demand in the southeast. So we have to think about the northern powerhouse. We have to think about housing across the UK as a whole. It's a very, very difficult balance to strike, but we also have to recognise that housing, building houses in in the southeast of England for a developer is far, far more lucrative than it is in other places in England. And the councils can only receive the offers they have from developers. They can't actually go out and proactively suggest that developers or or enforce developers to build where they think it would work. We need residents, really, to have a say in this because they're often the most intelligent about where building would work. And I believe this happened in Guildford when there was such an outrage about the local plan that the residents uh, started their own residence party and took over the council. And again, you've got places like Froome that are independently run with much more of a local say in the local plan. And that seems to work. Is that the kind of change we need then, you think? Well, I would be very, very up for that. And yes, I would absolutely love things to be freshened up and um, shaken up. And I think the Lib Dem by-election showed a you know, real discontent with how this, this planning development is going ahead. And um, Chesham, Amersham, maybe Horsham is next. Yeah, I think, well, that's an example of, of people being against housing development at the ballot box. And I think that's why we've got such a housing crisis, because there's always going to be a, a group of people who are vehemently opposed to any kind of housing in any location. And it's really difficult. We have to remember here, we're in a climate emergency. This is a crisis we're facing, and this is never voiced at planning level. We need to sequester carbon. We need to recover biodiversity. Housing has to be put into perspective. At the planning level for this development, by the council's own admission, the environment was hardly even looked at at the planning stage. It didn't receive equal consideration, which is what it legally is required to do. So this is going against the whole spirit of the Environment Bill, of the government's own ambitions. We have to act now. This is the decade. We have to turn things around for the climate across the globe. You know, we've got to stop thinking parochially and and think about a planetary crisis. So what's the next step on this particular development? And if people want to support you, what can they do? 
Well, they can go online to find the the West Grinstead Action Group and they can register their discontent right to Boris. Already we have 10,000 signatories. We have 20,000 local objections to this site. So they can absolutely lobby lobby the government, send a letter to Robert Jenrick, the housing minister, and question, where is the environment bill in all of this, this sort of planning? We have to think of what is coming down the road at us. So meanwhile, we at NEP are connecting with other farmers and landowners around us to create our nature recovery networks and corridors, which is incredibly exciting. There is a shift in mindset, I think, happening on the need for climate mitigation and nature connectivity. And so it's so exciting to see farmers and land managers and people in their gardens, um, you know, towns going pesticide free, connecting gardens together to get out into the countryside so that wildlife can flow in and out of towns. I mean, all sorts of things are happening. And it is just the entrenched planning paradigm and the old style councils that are not keeping up. So in terms of agricultural policy and farm subsidies, is that starting to drive change? Yes, I think it is. And that is, again, something very exciting. Um, Dare I say it, um, Brexit, I think, has been a game changer in in that regard. And Charlie and I were, you know, staunch Remainers. But having seen how government policy has changed and that we are reforming farming subsidies and the new environmental land management scheme coming at us is for the first time going to start rewarding farmers for good behaviour, essentially, for restoring their soils, for restoring water quality, for mitigating against floods, for allowing nature areas on their sites. And that's really, really exciting. So we will have to see how Elms shakes up and how it actually can be applied, how it's measured, you know, the defrometric again. But definitely the aim is very, very exciting. And that has certainly freed up farmers' minds, I think, about how they should be managing their land. And regenerative agriculture is becoming more of a byword. Certainly agroforestry, silviculture, all these things are beginning to happen. And Groundswell, the the wonderful farming event that talks about all this regenerative agriculture. I think had 3,000 people this year, farmers, interested in doing it. George Eustace was speaking on stage there this year. It's becoming a really significant event. We're in the middle of a revolution, I think, that's very exciting. I see it as similar to the, the, the sort of alternative energy revolution, say, 20 years ago, when I don't think any of us could believe that alternative energy could ever eclipse fossil fuels. And here we are. It has. We know that fossil fuels are out. That's the dinosaur that is going to die. And I think today we are seeing regenerative agriculture at exactly that moment. It's at a tipping point and we just need to embrace it as fast as possible. This piece of land next to you, is are you saying there's no way to build anything on it? It should be preserved without any development or that this is the wrong too intensive form of development? This is a very strategic, key piece of land between NEP, 
a biodiversity hotspot and St. Leonard's Forest, which is another biodiversity hotspot. So no, it should certainly not have three and a half thousand houses on it. I don't think it should be developed. If we are able to turn this decision around, then we would love to fund the money to, to and we already had several offers in from philanthropists who would like to buy that land obviously not at the value uh, for, for development value but farmland value I think we could find a way to purchase it and we could do a part rewilding project part regenerative agriculture project and then you would see a really significant wildlife corridor connecting us with St Leonard's Forest and perhaps Ashdown Forest beyond that so absolutely not that place for housing, no. And what's the time frame for the decision on this? The actual decision of the council, they're voting, I think, on, the, on July the 29th. But completely unethically, the Tory leader of the council has whipped his Tory councillors to vote in favour of this development. We don't know of any such similar event where councillors are not allowed to have a free vote on this. The Tory councillors are completely divided on this issue. And I think it, a recent vote amongst the Tory councillors ended up with just a margin of two in favour of developing Buck Barn site. So we are certainly contesting that use of the whip. And Lord Lytton, who is also local to here, will be bringing that up in the House of Lords, I believe. So, you know, another reason, I think, for, you know, let's, let's have a shake-up of, of the council and, and get a, a residence party having some more intelligent and more open and, and free vote on, on these kind of issues. You've also talked about land bridges as a crucial piece of infrastructure for ecological corridors. They're quite common in the Netherlands, but there's only two in the UK. Why are they so important and why don't we have more of them? Oh, that's such a good question. I just don't know. It's beyond me. The Netherlands is the most densely populated country in Europe, and they have hundreds of these green bridges connecting their areas of nature together. So they've got really fantastic functioning ecosystems that are able to link together. And as you say, we've got two, and I don't think they're actually specifically for wildlife. I think one of them is a cultural landscape. So it's not specifically designed for wildlife movement. We have to start connecting, I think, our fragmented landscape. We have, you know, roads are one of the biggest problems for, certainly for large mammals to be able to move around. I also wanted to ask you about tree planting. You've said we can get trees back on our land by sitting on our hands. Can you explain that? Yes, I mean, at NEP, we have wonderful areas of natural regenerating vegetation of woodland. If we didn't have our free-roaming animals out there, which we have to be the drivers of the system, we want, we're interested in biodiversity. So we are, are kind of using those animals, those large herbivores, to interact with vegetation to create the messy margins of a, a mosaic of different habitats. But if we didn't have those free-roaming animals, we would already be looking at the beginnings of a closed canopy wood. So, you know, we have thousands and thousands of oak trees planted by jays. We've got birch, we've got ash, we've got 
crab apple, wild service, you name it, all coming back of their own accord. We haven't planted a single tree, no polypropylene tubes, no tantalized wooden stakes, no um, plastic ties, no saplings grown in commercial nurseries, possibly from abroad, bringing in disease. You know, this is a low carbon, very easy way of getting trees back into our landscape. The Royal Botanic Gardens of Kew recently brought out a study saying that we have to preserve the trees we've got. That's rule number one. But we also have to make natural regeneration the default method for getting trees back into our landscape. And the reasons are really, first of all, because you end up with a much more biodiverse habitat for wildlife. If you're planting trees on the forestry model, which is currently what's happening, that is producing just single generational, often single species trees, very dark, closed canopy woodland, which is very, very species poor. It's not good for wildlife at all. We need our wild trees. There's a wonderful forestry researcher called Joan Cotterell, who recently showed us images of pollen plumes coming across to England from Siberia, from southern Europe. And these are connecting with our trees. So if we are wanting to produce trees in our landscape that are going to be resilient in the face of climate change, that are going to be able to respond to diseases, we're going to need the maximum amount of genetic diversity as we can possibly have. And the only way you can do that is by ensuring you have a wild population of trees. If you're planting trees that are commercially produced and propagated in commercial nurseries, you will not have that genetic biodiversity and you will not have the local adaptations that our existing trees have already formed in their soils and their geology and their local climates existing today. So that's vitally, vitally important. But also, you know, the huge carbon cost of planting trees. It's a lovely way of engaging people We've done it ourselves, you know, with our children, put a spade in the ground and watched a tree grow. But really, if we're thinking about how systems are going to be resilient and capture carbon and be biodiverse, then the treescapes of the future really need to be predominantly wild, naturally regenerated trees. You've reminded me of a, um, a line of, uh, from an Italo Calvino book, The wind in the city brings such fragrant gifts noticed by only a few sensitive souls, such as hay fever sufferers who sneeze at the pollen from other lands. (laughs) That's so wonderful. I mean, just think of the trees, you know, trees in our cities being pollinated from trees in great woodland areas in Poland. I mean, isn't that amazing? (laughs) (laughs) Such an interesting conversation, Isabella. I just have one last question for you. What do you have in the pipeline? You, you've mentioned the Wilding Handbook that you are working on and whatever else you're working on at the moment besides fighting this adjacent development. <laughs> yes, um, Charlie and I are working on the, the Wilding Handbook, which is turning into a bit of a kind of ravening, rewilded monster. But it is near completion now, and hopefully it'll be coming up out towards the end of next year or early following year, 2023, We've just been so excited by the sort of inundation of inquiries of people who've been to NEP and been excited and inspired to do stuff of their own. Hundreds of thousands of acres in the UK are already being rewilded by landowners and farmers, but people even with smaller patches, an orchard or a vegetable patch or or a back garden, are wanting to know how they can rewild 
And so this is a book that hopefully will be a practical guide on how to do it. So from from big to small. I've also just written a children's book called When We Went Wild, which has been great fun. That was a little lockdown project. I'm also going to be doing another storybook about the return of the white stork, which has been a wonderful story to watch unfold. We introduced white storks as part of the white stork project and the first white storks nested at NEP last year in the middle of lockdown. Their eggs started hatching out. So we had the first free-flying white storks to nest in the UK since 1416, the year after Agincourt. And I now have a chick on a new nest on my chimney. So the first building since St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh in the in the early 15th century. So there's going to be a, a, a children's book about when the storks came home. Fantastic. Well, thank you very, very much. I hope to come visit soon. In our next episode, we'll continue to explore the urgent question of where we can build new housing in rural areas. We will be speaking to architect Sarah Featherstone of Featherstone Young and planner Jennifer Ross of Tibbles, two of the women behind the Velo City proposal, about the work they are doing at Blenheim Estate in Oxfordshire. Could this approach work at NEP? If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.